Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I do want to say on the front end of the show today that, that this is coming out to you obviously a little bit late. Try to make this a weekly podcast, but but admittedly with conferences and some family time that I took over the course of the past week, uh, we ended up delaying really getting this episode launched. But I'm very excited to share this with you because uh, I have an opportunity in this podcast to talk with my good friend Paul Darvazi. And this dialogue really gets to the heart of creativity with regards to games in learning. And so uh, it's a topic that I'm really passionate about. It's one that I think is just really fun, both as an educator and as a learner, to be a part of those experiences. Uh, and Paul just has a wealth of knowledge. And I'm so grateful to have had him on this show. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Expect the second one this week so that we can keep on pace. And once again, as always, I appreciate you tuning in. Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I could not be more thrilled today to be able to have a conversation with Paul Dervazi, who is an educator. Actually, I love this aspect. I, I build this podcast as being for educators in Nebraska and around the country. And in the first 10 episodes, we're going international, baby. <laughs> we're going to have uh, my friend here, Paul from Toronto, our neighbor to the north here in Canada, to join us on the show today uh, to talk a little bit about games. And so uh, I'm very excited for the opportunity to maybe talk about something that's a little more creative and lighthearted. I know it's been kind of heavy and serious work we've been doing in the remote learning realm. Uh, but it'll be really great to think about how we can maybe do some things to uh, inspire creativity and to uh, connect with students on an emotional and like just a personal level because games can really bring that. And so that's, that's where we're going with today's dialogue. Paul, thank you so much for being on the pod. What a pleasure to join you. And I hope your listeners are okay with my Canadian accent. If, if anything is unclear, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it as neutral as possible. I think we'll be just fine. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and Paul is a great friend, so it's so, it'll be so fun to catch up here over the course of our conversation, too. So, Paul, uh, for people that don't know you as well as I do, uh, if you could kind of give us uh, your backstory, right? Talk a little about where you teach and, and your history with games. Sure, yeah. So I'm an English and media studies teacher at a school in Toronto, Ontario. I teach at a, at a small all-boys school downtown. Uh, I have been experimenting with games and learning for about 15 years now, uh, including I've uh, used commercial video games in classes. I've designed uh, classes as games and what you and I know are alternate reality games for classes. I do a lot of research into games and education. I just uh, defended my doctorate where I looked at uh, issues of race and Grand Theft Auto V. And I write about games and education just so that I can learn more about it. To not jump in too far into wait, because I'm sure people have this question right now. You play GTA Five in class. Um, I think before we get to that level with things, let's let's rewind real quick and talk about games and education because I think that there's terms that get thrown around sometimes that are okay. You have gamification. Does that mean all things are gamification? I know there's game based learning. Uh, you and I talk ARGs, and anytime you get in acronyms, people get lost. So let's get the nomenclature down, and then we'll kind of like push into how do you start to talk about each of these different types of games, I guess, video games being one of them um, in terms of their implementation in education. Yeah, that's great. So I think that the first major distinction that a lot of people may not be aware of is there is a difference between gamification and game-based learning. And I think most of your listeners will be more familiar with gamification than game-based learning would be my guess. 
So gamification actually is not necessarily a game. It's, it's stripping the reward apparatus that we often find in video games. So things like badges and achievements and levels and leaderboards. And we can turn pretty much any experience into a quote unquote game by adding that reward mechanism. I could turn, you know, I could reward my kids with experience points every time they put their dishes in the dishwasher and then they, they level up and I give them some kind of a reward. That doesn't mean that putting dishes into the dishwasher is a game. It just means that we've taken game like uh, reward systems and applied that to a situation. And there's a great value in doing this. People are incentivized and motivated by those extrinsic rewards, but as teachers, we're always looking for the intrinsic angle. We want them to be genuinely connected to the material. And that's where game-based learning comes in. Game-based learning is much more about the game than the reward. It doesn't mean that you can't use rewards in game-based learning, but at the heart of it is a game experience. So it's either that you're using a board game in your class to teach you know, capitalism through Monopoly, or you're, you're bringing in a video game like Edith Finch that you and I have both used in order to explore issues of identity through the development of a character inside of the game, much as we would with a work of literature. So game-based learning really revolves much more around genuine gameplay experience. Experiences. And if we're going down a, a glossary or roster of, of terminology, I'll add two more things. A, a common confusion is you and I both have designed ARGs. Those are alternate reality games. Many people confuse ARGs with AR, which is augmented reality. Right. So augmented reality is projecting digital information onto a physical space. Right. So you, you, it's like Pokemon Go. You see these little critters in the middle of your front lawn or on some famous monument that's being projected by your phone. That's AR, uh, augmented reality. An alternate reality game is a whole different kettle of fish. It could use AR. You could have augmented reality in your alternate reality game, but it's really a large scale game. It's almost like a video game played in real life that many people are involved in. You're getting clues, phone calls in the middle of the night. And in the best ARGs, there's a line that blurs between reality and the world of the game. You're not quite sure, is, is that poster on the wall because it's part of the game or is that a real poster on the wall? Which is my favorite part of ARGs because you can really mess around with kids' heads. Well, and let's roll with that then. And that, that truly is a story of how I, I came to know Paul. I was at a conference and had someone who's involved within this games and education community, Stephen Isaac who in dialogue with him, he said, hey, you need to really check out Paul's blog. I got a chance to see a little bit of the work he had done with his ARG and then reached out and through our collaboration, got an opportunity to develop my own. And so, um, Paul, share a little bit more about the Ward game and kind of the nuances of implementing an, an ARG. Sure, yeah, of course. So the origin of what, what eventually was called the Ward game, it didn't have a name the first time I played it, actually, was uh, I'd read a, a paper somewhere when I was exploring the possibility of using commercial video games in classrooms. And the paper was about integrating video games in the class. And they had this provocative kind of throwaway line at the end that said, uh, don't just think about using video games in class, but what would it look like if your class were turned into a video game? And that, that kind of planted the seed where I was like, wow, that sounds like the coolest thing ever. How could you turn a living classroom into a video game? At that time, there wasn't really any model that I found that, you know, I, I think it was just kind of a theoretical idea. I'm sure there were people doing something like it somewhere, but I certainly didn't find them. And a few years later, as this idea kind of germinated in the back of my head, I was, I was thinking about teaching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Ken Kesey's novel, to my seniors in their last month of school, which is when uh, senioritis is in full swing. They've totally, uh, you know, checked out. They're in sweatpants. They've stopped showering. All hell's broken loose. And I'm thinking, 
there's no way they're going to read this book, right? They, they, they probably won't read it at the best of times, right? And uh, as we know, as English teachers, there's a whole theater of, of reading that goes on. So I really, I was really kind of, but I, the book's important to me. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's an absolutely brilliant book. Many of you may have seen the film, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is also great, but uh, the book definitely steals the show. So I was really concerned about getting my kids invested in the book. And then all of a sudden, I was really late one night, I was working on a presentation for something completely different. And I had this aha moment where I thought, wait a minute, that idea about turning your class into a video game, maybe I can turn my my classes into a version of the way that Kesey describes the asylum in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and and it went from there. And and I, I quickly realized that the world of my school, which has uh, you know it's an all boys school, they wear uniforms, that it very much had some strange and disturbing similarities to the way that the asylum was being described anyway. And so by aligning the you know this narrative of the asylum with the school. Uh, it worked out beautifully. My students were completely engaged. I stripped all these ideas from the novels and kind of rolled them out as game mechanics where they were kind of spying on each other, completing missions, and more or less following the trajectory of the book. Uh, I played a role of an authoritarian nurse, um, a rep, you know, sort of playing the part of Nurse Ratchet in the novel, except for in my version of it, uh, they were just a series of propaganda videos by this uh, very disturbing Big Brother-like entity who was known as the Big Nurse. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. And they played for a month. They absolutely loved it and, and produced a whole bunch of work based on the mission system that, that I created in the game. And then, you know, my first draft was definitely a bit rough as I was kind of figuring this whole thing out. And in the years that followed, I improved the design and ended up running the game for four years. That's incredible. And it was one that I, I still can remember when I accessed the blog for the first time and I started reading, I was like, this is insane. This is crazy. This is amazing. And I just kept going through the different pages and, and your posts along the way. And it was something that inspired me to, to do something similar in that, that game-based element, as you talked about earlier, yes, it's fun to be immersed in this alternate reality, but as you noted, you get to accomplish something that I think just makes the, the learning so personal and you, you live the theme. I, I, and so mm -hmm. I ended up creating a game in my classroom that I call the, the Awakening at East Side High, and I taught it West Side. And so, and with my last name being Easton, uh, I decided it was kind of a fun play right We're there with that and so uh, the game was set in almost dystopian style school and that we were reading just dystopian novels at that point in time we were doing a sci-fi unit and it was a choice unit so students had four books to pick from but in all of those as is characteristic of dystopians you kind of have this authoritarian figure which we created as this principal um, who is not me is actually played by my friend who's a theater teacher uh, and he had a blast we made some videos from him but he he sort of represented within the theme this dark approach to education where it's drill and kill and it's the over testing uh, you know element i think was in there as well and, and it, so it was awesome to sort of pair that against this rogue teacher who was starting this the awakening this underground you know kind of movement to buck that system and it was, it was about a month long in the same way. But what I found so interesting was I tried to build in ethical dilemmas because that was something, a term that we were studying. And I thought, how do you start to create that right versus right or, or just that conflict within these individuals so they really understand what that, that feels like to be that protagonist that has to kind of go against 
big brother <laughs> or mm -hmm. you know something much larger than themselves and, and the courage it takes to do that and i was rewarded i felt like almost instantly because on the first day as students had to uh, and this is a brilliant design aspect that paul brought up um in his kind of sharing with me that students need to willingly join the game was something that mm -hmm. kind of really stood out in our conversation and so i set up the scenario to where students had to kind of agree to play you know in in a way that is probably not it was not that apparent to them they had a choice to make and that was one of our ethical dilemmas and i had a student who did not even respond to that and came in after class uh somewhat upset <laughs> and she said mr easton i i understand that we're playing a game here and i and i uh would want to go against this principle for the things that he represents and stands for. But if I'm taking this seriously, I'm not sure I would do that. <laughs> I'm not really sure that I, being me, would, would stand up and do something you know, against this. Just, I would probably just let it happen. And she was so distraught that it brought her to subtle tears, is what I'll say. And it's the only time ever, I sort of joke, it's the only time ever that a student cried in class that I was sort of like giddy about, like I was kind of like happy that that, that happened. And, and of course she was fine, but uh, it illustrated that an alternate reality game does hold the potential to accomplish the things that we're talking about here. Uh, and, and I think that that's the goal. Uh, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of relationships that go into it. It's incredibly creative and it's multimodal and the, that experience is phenomenal. But at its core, that why, it does have an academic purpose that I think is, is critical when we talk about games that, that we're not just talking about doing things purely for this, in the name of fun. Um, though I love when you can accomplish both at the same time. Yeah, there's so much there. I mean, first of all, what games are phenomenal for exploring moral dilemmas because moral dilemma requires a choice or a deliberate, you know, sort of moment of agency on the part of the person making that decision, right? And when you're reading about it, you're not really making a decision. You're just kind of exploring different avenues of thought. But in a game environment, because you have choices to make, uh, I think it's a perfect way to explore moral decisions. I think it's actually uh, amazing that you included that as part of your game. Uh, the other thing that I find really interesting is, of course, emotions, right? I, I've had a lot of emotions in my games. And, and early on, when I was in my kind of rougher draft of the word game the first time around, and I ha it, it definitely bordered on social experiment because I subverted the whole system of the school. I didn't warn my students I was doing this. And I hadn't learned, you know, that lesson I shared with you about making it voluntary. I learned that the hard way from the first time playing. And then I read in, in Jane McGonigal's book, Reality's Broken, she said, a game has to be voluntary. And I'd already made a non-voluntary game, so I felt very badly about that and, and learned a lesson. And in subsequent years, I would give kids options to stop playing or to do something entirely different. And every year, a few kids decided to take that route and that in itself is an option in agency whether you play or you don't play and, and I and I felt that that gave the game a great deal more power and then finally what's interesting about both of our games is that they're both challenging the system right I'm, I'm kind of saying hey you know what schools and asylums not too different right you know we we, we medicate our students we we ply them with coercion we use these kind of authority figures we're trying to normalize them to fit into society in a way that we need them to fit into society, all of these things, right? And we pathologize mental illness. I, I feel that there's a much better way to deal with mental illness personally than some of the over-medication that we seem to be doing in society. And similarly, I think we pathologize students who don't perform well. It's almost like it's your fault, you're faulty, because you don't work in our system, as opposed to like, maybe the system is faulty, right? That we're not actually getting this brilliant young mind engaged. 
And you and I both feel really strongly about that system. And we've seen the negative elements of the system. And what both of our games do is while proposing an alternative, because both of our games propose an alternative, right? The, your awakening is not business as usual. It's, it's this whole different way to learn and to be with each other in an educational space. So instead of just talking and saying education should change, what you've done is you've, you've proposed a viable alternative. You're saying, hey, not only is education a problem, but this is our way out, or this is one way out. And I find that these games are very, very powerful for particularly that reason, that they're showing us windows of possibility beyond our current regimented kind of education regime, I would call it. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, my game also was launched while I was on a team with two other teachers, and we had common formatives and common summatives, and we had a very short class period. And so if you're listening to this too, and you're saying, this all sounds great, but I'm not sure I could do that within the constructs of my current circumstances. I, I would I would encourage you to just um, a metaphor you sometimes is to say that I think every house has load bearing walls, but you get an opportunity to kind of make it your space around those. <laughs> and I think that there's space for uh, an ARG in the midst of that. And it, it was as simple just to, to give some practicality to it as we were supposed to collect quotes from these respective books to sort of log for a later essay, right? And so we're going through and just annotating for certain ideas. And so my character urged students to find the lines that they found inspirational and that spoke to them from their text and to write those on the walls of the classroom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'd actually gotten some theater panels that uh, the art department created to make the room look really drab. That, uh, the theater panels, the art department painted on them uh, we put those up on the walls. Uh, and so when students are writing on the walls, they're really writing on these these panels. But it was just a, the act of standing up and advocating for literature in a public way and in a way that sort of expressed a, a like, because graffiti does that. Right? Right. It, it is you um, putting a message out there in a, in a way that is usually against what is lawful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think. And uh, it was fun to, to do that. So that's just one example of how that, that plays out. And we could probably talk ARGs all day and, and <laughs> fill a whole podcast with that. Uh, let's shift a little bit to where we kind of started in that. Let's talk about the introduction of video game as text. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also both had a chance to do that. And I know you have much more experience with it than, than I um, and have done some really cool things in that space. Um, yeah, so I happen to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this name is not in wide circulation these days, but there's a, a thinker that I'm really drawn to named Marshall McLuhan, who is one of the biggest media literacy scholars in the, you know, founding, he's a founding media literacy scholar. And he has taught us how to think about media very differently. And his background, he's a PhD in literature, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. But he moved towards media theory later in his career. And he said, all media is text. A commercial is a text, the TV show is a text. Everything can be studied, analyzed the same way that you would a book or a play in a traditional English classroom. And so McLuhan, who, whose uh, home is about four blocks away from where I live, and who taught at the University of Toronto, which is very close to where I am, is very much a local figure for me, somebody who is, is, is part of my community. And he's, he's influenced a lot of my thinking. And, and it, very, McLuhan was very much in my mind when I said, well, a video game's also a text. So why isn't there a place in a classroom, an English classroom, for a rich literary video game that has character development and rich settings and symbolism and all the things that we would normally find in a traditional textbook or a traditional work of literature? And thankfully, because of McLuhan's influence in my region, he educated, well, he was a teacher here in the 60s, 
a whole cohort of, of students who went on to actually write our curriculum for the, for the province. And they, influenced by McLuhan, mandated that 25% of all of our English classes in Ontario high schools uh, are media literacy focused. So 25% of what we have to do in English is media literacy, which makes so much sense. The kind of analysis that we traditionally reserve for books and plays are now being directed to media, which to be honest with you, is 100% where our students live. I, I hate, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to know that students are, are, they're not reading less. They're actually probably absorbing as many words as we were in our youth and, and those before us. It's just they're not reading sustained books and novels the way that they used to, particularly in high school. There's still a strong reading in middle school, but it tends to kind of fall off the cliff in high school as the other homework gets heavier, they're in social media, they have access to more things, they're more social, and reading falls off to the side. So what I feel is really valuable is directing those critical tools, those tools of analysis to texts that make sense to them, right? To memes and video games and, and, and social media and all of these things are valuable resources for critical thinking. So based on, on that kind of McLuhan-esque thinking, I started adopting narrative-based games in my class, games like Gone Home, What Remains of Edith Finch, The Stanley Parable, and, and all of those have a, have a great deal of depth that, that the, and, and the students, unlike many of the books, actually play the game and have a lot more substance to discuss these ideas in the classroom. And that, that kind of thinking and, and trajectory brought me to the, to the very contentious decision of using Grand Theft Auto V uh, in a classroom. One point you brought up there that I found to also be true of the experience whenever I incorporated Edith Finch as well, like in, into my own classroom, was I, I had a learner population of seniors who historically had had behavior issues and attendance issues, and school is, what we can just say, is not was not their favorite thing. <laughs> and so you're right. Everyone plays, and we've spoken about this as well before, but everyone plays the game of school where you have uh, the teacher stands at the front and they assign the different readings. Students don't read. And so then they try to pretend as if they... <laughs> we've all lived it, right? It's our reality. Yeah. Like whether, whether I, I bring it up or not, we've all lived that, that reality of the kids just are, are not reading, right? And I have to say, it wasn't much better. I don't know about you, but it wasn't much better when I was in high school. I, I know that a lot of my classmates were not doing the readings for those English classes, right? And they were using those kind of spark notes at the time, the, the paper version or, or any. And now they obviously have the internet and each other to help them through school. Well, and, and it was amazing because when we actually, when everyone in the class actually experienced the narrative and could speak intelligibly about it, the conversations just flew right. <laughs> off the charts type uh, dialogue and students routinely it was interesting because the, when we started that unit they were very excited about a video game instead of a text and and there still were as you with edith finch everything that said out loud is on the screen you still have the opportunity to read it and we had supplemental text also with that museum and me curriculum but when you got to about the midway point of the unit they appreciated the discussions they looked forward to those probably even more so than they did the the video game itself and they had a student come in and say we should do this all the time i go if you guys read all the time this is what english class would be like and right. would have been like but but uh but they don't experience that because of the truth that is that people don't finish the book or they they don't get into it uh, if we have a single text for the class and and so what a great opportunity for those learners even to just in a in a single unit experience realize the potential that English class holds 
to, to have a rich dialogue that you can learn a great deal from if you're willing to invest in stories in that way. So I love to bring this full circle that in your providence that they've made that a priority. I love that, that 25% rule. Oh yeah, it, but, but it's very badly executed, right? <laughs> because uh, the uh, it, it's true. best of intentions, but best of intentions, and because and, and I think I have to say I love my English teachers. Love you guys. Love you know I'm an English teacher. I'm a lit guy. I'm a lit nerd. Uh, I woke up this morning and and I'm very closely annotating you know sort of a novel as I'm I, I you know I, I live for books right and books have been the best part of my my kind of spiritual and mental nourishment. But, you know, McLuhan was asked once, he sat down, and this guy's a lit guy. I mean, I, he outlits the littiest of them. And, and he, he sat down and, and somebody asked him, so you're saying that books are done, that the future, you know, is that a good thing, a bad thing, that we're moving to television and film and all this other stuff? He goes, look, I don't know if it's better or worse, but it's happening. <laughs> we, can't, we can't reverse the course of history, right? I don't think for one second, I, I have to say it, that a very well-written book to me is still superior to a very good film. A very well-written book I, is still superior to me to a very good video game. And, and some people may contest that. And, and part of it is, I feel that there's an inherent aspect of literature that I think seeps into your brain differently, that forces you to do more work mentally, that, that it gives you a more rewarding experience. But also it's one of the oldest mediums. So it's had the time to really accumulate, right? To, to really gain a critical mass. Uh, but all the mediums were just, Disgusting, are all under 100 years old, you know, film, television, I mean, maybe a bit more than 100, but within the century. So they haven't had that time to, to, to create that same mass. And I'm sure we're moving to modes of communication that'll have the depth and richness of literature. There's no doubt about that in my mind. We're just not quite there yet. But the point is, if they're not going to be doing the reading anywhere, if most students are, class becomes a survival game where everybody's kind of like, I hope he doesn't pick me or I'll have one question ready to answer so that, you know, then I, once he's done with me, he'll just go to somebody else and I'll know that I won't have to answer again and all these strategies, right? And it's more about strategy than being in the moment because you know you haven't done what you're supposed to do. So now it's all kind of this deceit going back and forth where the teacher kind of knows you probably didn't read it. You know that you haven't read it, but you're pretending you read it. And in the end, like, what are we doing? Right. Like and, and then hearing about your experience where your students all played the game and had a rich and meaningful discussion. What you've done is you've let a smart person who may not feel that smart when they don't read the book and they don't have anything to talk about. But when they actually feel empowered with the narrative under their belt, that that releases their intelligence instead of playing that survival game where they're more worried about getting caught out than actually about saying something meaningful, which would naturally come from engaging with the narrative. First of all, I cannot agree more. And then I also look at the clock and go, well, I'm going to probably pivot to the next point, which we're going to need to. Um, this is great. We could talk, I seriously could talk about this stuff all day with these, these games, which is why I want to point people to the other resources that are out there to extend this conversation. Because um, we had an opportunity to talk games uh, and just in terms of the, the glossary that we went through earlier, we got a chance to talk ARGs, video games. And I want to pivot now a little bit because you brought up I like the way that you phrase it there and saying that there are certain things that are happening socially that we just have to be re reactive to. Uh, and I think that the present moment with COVID and remote learning uh, is another reaction, right? You can love teaching remotely, you can hate teaching remotely, uh, but it has happened and it's likely to continue to happen. And so uh, how then have you started to think about taking this wealth of knowledge that you have in terms of games and its application in a classroom setting and leveraging even these different types of media. Uh, and what does that look like in this new context? Mm -hmm. So 
I think that for most of us, most teachers that actually managed to get online and most teachers who actually had enough students who were able to get online with them to carry out any version of an online course, right? Because we know that the digital divide has been exposed in all of its glory. And, and there's a huge segment of the population that was left out of education, a fundamental human right, because of the way that we distribute, you know, sort of our technology and the way that the accessibility issues for families that are struggling financially, all of this was exposed. But let's say you're in the blue sky scenario with most of your students are online and you're teaching online. We all know that the courses we delivered were absolutely survival right? We're, we're taking more or less what we're doing in front of them, trying to ship it online, because that's all that could be asked of us. Many of us have families. Uh, we weren't prepared to do this as teachers. And so what we just went through by no means is a vision of what online learning can look like, right? It, was, it has nothing to do with what good online learning might look like. And what I find a little bit alarming is this is defined online learning in the minds of many, many people now. And, and it might chase them back into that very traditional school system that we're trying so hard to bring up to 21st century standards, right? So to answer your question, I, I see that one, this is an incredible opportunity for teachers to show their creativity and design thinking. To think about uh, how do I reconfigure my practice to make sense online? And, and online changes everything. I mean, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but students that I had struggling face-to-face, -face, some of them were thriving online. Some students that struggled face-to-face -face also struggled online. And some students who flourished face-to-face -face actually had a real tough time online. Teachers who may not be exceptional in face-to-face -face classes became exceptional online, and some exceptional face-to-face -face teachers really drowned online. So what that indicates is online changes everything, right? It reconfigures the whole thing. And in and of itself, it has to be reconfigured. You can't, you can't cleanly translate classroom practices to online teaching. It just doesn't make sense. It's a different channel, different forum, different ethos. So what you and I have learned from games, what engages, how, because one thing about running a game like an ARG is that you step back, you do a lot of design up front, then the game kind of gathers momentum and then you're just making adjustments as you go along, right? And it's all about preparation. And that's one thing we learn in game design is it's about getting it all set up up front and then there's less onus on you as it's moving forward. You're not sitting there lecturing, you've created an experience where the kids are moving through that experience, you're kind of their, their, their guide or their facilitator, which is, you know, which is ideal teaching practices, right? We learn about that or we aim for that in a variety of different ways, not just through games. And I feel that by using some gamification stuff, maybe levels, maybe points, maybe badges in online learning, but also creating fun online experiences, like the lowest hanging fruit, some of the most successful things you can do online include Kahoot. Right, a Kahoot is that 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 you know free. I think they have a premium version uh, online quiz program, and I know that I relied on that pretty heavily for my online learning in the in the last couple of months. And it was something that the kids never got tired of and were excited to play. So anytime you can turn an online experience into an experience, not you just sitting there and droning into into the the, the conference call, which I did many times. I'm totally guilty of that. I like to drone, um, and uh, and but I, I I you know whenever I did manage to create an experience, 
they were way more invested, way more active. And my wife was actually, frankly, quite better at that than I. She teaches French at my school, and she's really great at designing small games and experiences. One of the ones that she did, and here's one for teachers. Here's, some, here's a takeaway, right? You need a takeaway. Uh, there's a great game called GeoGuessr where you get dropped somewhere in the world using Google Maps and you don't know where, and you have to use your environmental clues to figure out your location, right? So you're, you might be in like a farm community in the Ukraine and you're looking at the Ukrainian street signs and figuring out kind of where you are. And so she did that for her French class and they just loved it. And they had to describe their experience in French. And I think she may have actually made it in such a way that they were dropping in French locations. I have no idea. So those kinds of experiences make online learning way, way more powerful. And I think now for the educators that have the time and energy, this is the time to design. This is the time to really think about what's ahead and, and creating powerful online experiences. And it's trial and error, right? We learn as we do. Some things work, some things don't. And we grow from there. I couldn't agree more with, you know, this wasn't online learning. This is emergency learning online. <laughs> and right. I, I think we have uh, uh, a lot of room to grow, as you said. And I like the uh, comment that you kind of concluded with there in, in saying that now is really an opportune time to start to really think through and, and put in the hours it takes to be intentional enough to front load those types of experiences for the fall. And it, it's a big ask, I think, on some level, because some people are so emotionally drained from the end of the previous school year. But to the yeah. degree that you're ready for that um, and, and hopefully are energized by it. I know I, I appreciate our dialogue, Paul, because I know you're somebody that is so passionate about this because it makes uh, there's a there's a creative energy with it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an energy within the classroom and the relationship piece is so critical um, and, and games allow for that piece to, to really thrive because uh, mm -hmm. it brings out something different in students that I think the familiar experiences that they're accustomed to in, in mm -hmm. our system don't. Uh, and so this is an unfamiliar territory in this remote uh, setting as we're you know learning how to teach in those spaces. And I, I, I like the potential that games have for as we enter into the fall and I'm concerned about how do we I mean, so many of us benefited from three-fourths of a school year getting to know our students. So when we had to go remotely, that relationship piece was solidified. I mean, if you did it right, mm, right. <laughs> previously, and you could build upon that. And it was about maintaining exactly. it versus fostering it from nothing. And, and uh, for someone who went through maybe somewhat of a stale experience for the duration of the fourth quarter, to, to be told, hey, you're headed back to remote learning. Oh, I can just hear it. <laughs> Where uh, if you get to your English class or, or this new teacher, if you're an elementary teacher, right, uh, all of a sudden poses this type of game format or has some sort of game mechanics or gamification involved, it's going to be fresh, it's going to be different, and it will open up the opportunity for you to pour a little bit of yourself into it as a student, which I, I think will um, really bring engagement, but also personality to, to that online space. How's that kind of hit your brain? Would you agree? Uh, 100%. Yeah. And, I think, and I think that, you know, if we're getting to, down to the brass tacks here with everything that we've talked about, I think what we're asking uh, educators are two things. You and I both, we, we value the creative opportunities in education. We're nourished by those creative opportunities. And that's not everybody, because I'll tell you, there are a lot of people who've convinced themselves that they're not creative, right? And, and it's said and done. Oh, sorry, I'm not a creative person. And yes, there are people who are more inclined to creativity like others, just like there's some people who are more inclined to athleticism than others but you know I'm not particularly athletic doesn't mean I can't go for a run 
I don't have to be the best runner. I don't have to be the star, but I can go out and, and feel healthy and good about what I'm doing within my own boundaries. And what I'd like to see more, my dream, my dream is to see teachers thinking of themselves differently, to change your, the way that you've labeled yourself, what a teacher is, what a teacher's supposed to be, what your teachers looked like when you were a kid and your version of that now. Throw all that away. Get rid of it. Be creative, not just in the way that you approach your classes, but be creative in how you think of yourself as a teacher. Like, what is it that you can do or can't do? And that starts small. It's usually you, you start with a little window of light and you start chipping away at that window and it gets bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, everything starts falling away and the light just floods the room. And I, and I feel that it would be so important that for teachers now there's an incredible opportunity to and it does require energy and we're all tired and we're, we're all thinking about our own families and we're all uncertain about whether we're going to be in class not in class half in class but all of this is these kind of dark moments where things are uncertain these are the moments where creativity and design flourish and and i think that what we we will succeed once teachers start thinking of themselves as creative designers and deliberately trying to follow that path, no matter where you feel like you fall on that spectrum of design and creativity. Oh, and channeling that into <laughs> that angst and all that emotion that, that is a driver of artistic expression. Exactly. <laughs> I think across any, uh, and so the, like you said, the circumstances are ripe for that. I, I had an informal conversation with someone yesterday. I can't wait to hear the music that's going to come out here in the not so distant future and, uh, and art and all the different ways in which this right. time and the time away kind of unplugged from our, our familiar, um, what right. that's going to lead in terms of new thinking. And just as maybe to kind of, It'd be great to even close on that note, but I will say this practical example. What were you sort of doing in that remote setting uh, with your own uh, students as an opportunity to something that I'm sure knowing you, you're going to look to build upon. Um, but at that present moment, what was that kind of like? So I, I have to guiltily admit two things. One is that my I can't say my classes were spectacular because I, well, who's I, I emergency online learning who you know that's okay i think my <laughs> wife i have to say my wife wins that award i can't believe what she managed but she teaches two classes she's and and she runs my household so that's like a job and a half altogether but she did remarkable things with her students online i i was blown away she's she i i say this with all honesty she is by far a better teacher than i am in in terms of that kind of face-to-face moment-to-moment classroom teaching stuff but uh to answer your question the reason I feel like I, I could have probably been a bit better is that I actually designed a game for my school for all students to participate in that, that was uh, designed with the intent of getting them invested in our school location and history to so keep the spirit of the school alive in their, in their life uh, while they were away and dispersed. And I drew a lot from old yearbooks and archives that were digitally available and used a lot of neighborhood maps and locations. So all my efforts went into kind of engaging the wider community at the probably at the expense of being more creative and design oriented in my smaller classes. So my dream next year is to kind of fuse those two, take all the lessons I learned from running that game that kind of brought the community together and applying those to my individual classes and seeing, you know, in that great alchemical experiment, what happens when you blend those two things together. Okay, so now I'm really, you piqued my interest. What, what kind of rough draft do you have of what that vision looks like of piecing those two together? So I, I'd like to create, um, I'd like to create experiences. Like what if a class looks more like an escape room than a class? 
right? What if you go in and, you know, my dream is what, you know, I like to set myself constraints. The, the beauty, you know, if you're artistic or creative, constraints are your best friend. You often think they're your enemy, but they're actually your best friend. So I could create a constraint like, can I run this class and, and say absolutely nothing? Put elements at play. They come in, they get a link. All they see is a link. They go into that link. Uh, and then there's a puzzle related to their homework. And they have to kind of solve that puzzle. And then at the end, it says, well, now you've got to get into a team to do this. So in a sense, you set up a sequence of events that they have to do and solve and work through in order to arrive at a, at a certain conclusion. And you just kind of, you're off to the side, paring your fingernails as they're <laughs> going through all of this, you know, all of this stuff. So, uh, so I think that without any kind of very concrete, tangible uh, descriptions, anytime we can create kind of the learning conditions and step back uh, is, is valuable. And I'd like to start doing that with my students in, in online environments. And, and so much of all of these games too comes down to taking things that are, I think as we said, familiar or things that we would do anyway and just rebranding them. And so just in your comment there, I started to think, it would be interesting to just put some sort of timer in that space that was mm -hmm. counting down from Friday, right? And so instead of saying this is all due by Friday, which means I have an infinite amount of potential time to get this done, if you actually saw this timer that was sequentially just counting back, like, like you, this is it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and you have to get out of this room by the, the time this timer goes off. Um, yeah. Something as simple as that, I think would be a motivator and cause me to see what I was doing a little bit differently. A hundred percent. Timers are so powerful. You get so much more out of your students when you've got a timer running backwards. So I'm all for that. I may actually try using that exact same idea. Thank you, Andrew. You've inspired <laughs> yeah. me once again. This is, I, that's, that's, uh, uh, I appreciate when we get to check in and we do these little riffs sometimes where different ideas kind of come out of it that, that are really cool. And, uh, um, so, gosh, I appreciate that. Any closing messages if you kind of had to, I feel like we've certainly touched upon a number of things over the course of this dialogue, but uh, something that you would just share to teachers uh, as they're thinking through maybe trying to follow up on this in their practices? Yeah, so I, I, I'm more of a challenge, right? I'd say like yeah. I, I challenge anybody who's listening, who's an educator, who's in charge of kids to shake something up whatever that looks like, right? Uh, to, to, to look at your world, the world of school, and come, we, we're all unhappy about certain elements of our schooling, our work environments, the way our schools are structured. No matter how much you love your workplace out of school, you know that things could be better. So identify some of those things, maybe small, maybe large, and think about how you, through your practice, can uh, initiate something creative or otherwise to, to make that change, to, to to open up the realm of possibility within the very tight structures uh, that, that make schools up. And that message in and of itself is why I was so excited to have you on the pod today. I really enjoyed our conversation and, and I uh, would echo that. I, I challenge everyone to go and try to put some of these things in place and let us know, you know, as you kind of try these different things out, it's always great to, to hear what people are doing. And so, Paul, thanks so much for advocating for everything today and uh, look forward to maybe having you back on the pod sometime soon. Oh, I would love that. Thanks so much, Andrew. It was such a pleasure to join you today.